Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. Now is the time to consider attending a study retreat with us this summer. Our programs for community leaders and rabbis have been running for decades. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, Dr. Micha Goodman, a research fellow at the Institute. His lecture is titled, Zionism, the Question of Sovereignty. So it's a real privilege to be here, and I'm very happy to discuss these issues. And I think I'm also very proud of being a member of Mahon Hartman at this time, at this place. I was two years ago invited to deliver a lecture in Baltimore and John Hopkins. And I gave a lecture about philosophy and Maimonides and Israel and contemporary challenges. And the only thing the students really wanted to talk about was about the conflict with the Palestinians. And they asked some questions, and they started really getting into it. And I, I, I'm an Israeli. I, 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 it took a long time to really get what these Americans are about. I was born and raised in Israel. I was never more than a month outside of Israel. Don't let my, so so I, I was listening, and then there was this very, very nice student, a female. She raised her hands from the back of the, from the back of the class, and she asks me, why don't you just cancel it. And I was sure she meant the occupation, so I gave her the party line, listen, we offered them a two-state solution, camp, you know, the whole party line. And then she said, no, no, no. And anybody's like, no, 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 you don't get it. Why don't you just cancel Israel? And anyone around her was like, hey, what? That was, and then I finally got it that there was a real generational gap in North America today, where, and on my flight back, I was so shocked when she asked that question, I, I really, uh, she caught me really off guard, and I met some more students in more campuses, and I realized that this is a real question, and on the way back, when I was on the plane, so I thought of all the answers I should have answered her, by the way, when I came back, I told everyone those were the answers I gave. <laughs> So this is what I told her, <laughs> that I saw, I saw, I th there's, it's interesting, you know, n many people criticize China's, gov the, the government of China's policies, but no one undermines China's legitimacy. People criticize Sudan's policy and don't undermine the legitimacy. China's one of the only countries in the world where the, the differentiation between criticizing the policy or delegitimizing the existence of a state is completely blurred. And I realize this is a very, very serious challenge that we need to address. And I think we need to address it in, a, in an exciting way. In an exciting way, I think. And what we'll try to establish today is go back to our sources, but use our sources to reflect on this great, important, contemporary question. And what I'll try to do today is not be apologetic about Israel. I think it's I find it absurd and also not rewarding 
to try to say that Israel has a right to exist. I mean, you don't see Italians walking around saying we have the right to exist. But I think we should ask a different question. What is the opportunities that Zionism presents in front of us? What is the, what's exciting about Israel today? Now when I say exciting Israel today, following the footsteps of my Rabbi David Hartman, say what is the potential that Israel, that, 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 that Israel contains? What is the potential for, and the way I like to ask the question is as following, I believe that Zionism, that the existence of the state of Israel is Judaism's greatest opportunity. And that is something I'd like to try to establish using, using our ancient sources, and I'm a great believer in using the Bible. Yeah, the, so we're going to study some biblical texts here, trying to, to understand the, the opportunity that Zionism presents in front of Judaism. And I'll, I'd like to, uh, to offer the following way. We have, we have some time, so I'd like to read. I'd like to go back to Egypt and think with you and read with you the story of Exodus. After that, okay, okay, I'll get into it, don't worry. I'll warm up, don't worry. Yeah. After that, I'd like to go into, I'd like, we'll separate into Chevruta and instead I find an amazing text, Isaiah 19, then we'll come back to capture that text. Okay, is that okay? Okay. So, so let's begin. Exodus chapter 1. I like to follow this text. Because I believe in Exodus 1 and 2, we find the DNA, in many ways, of Jewish history. So I'm starting to read from Exodus 1. Now listen, I'll be reading this in Hebrew from the source, and you can either follow me in Hebrew or follow me in parallel in English. Okay? These are the names of the sons of, of Israel. So eventually, it was only only 70 people that left Israel and found themselves in Egypt. Only 70. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, meaning now we have, when a generation dies, a new generation appears. That's when many, many changes appear throughout history. Within one generation, what happens? The population expands. Now I want to capture here a few words. The term Purubu, are you acquainted with this term? Okay. Be fruitful and multiply. This is Genesis 1. And now he doesn't only say be fruitful and multiply, he says, according from Genesis 1, God says to the people, your only commandment is, Be fruitful, multiply, and 
Fill the world. Now what does it say here? Meaning, what are they doing here? What are they doing here? They filled the world. They are fulfilling the first commandment in the Bible. Literally speaking. There is not only a new generation, but obviously new politics and new king. Pharaoh tells his people that the people of Israel are now too large. They've grown too quickly. And now they present a true threat to our sovereignty. What is the threat that they present? Says Pharaoh. What is the threat? That's right. They are not loyal. We can't trust them. And accusing the Israelites for being not loyal, this is a classic, classic way of dealing with foreigners. You question their loyalty. You imagine what will happen if there'll be a war. They might be what we call in Israel, Gais Hamishi, a fifth division. You know what a fifth division is? A fifth column. Now I want to go back to this comment of Pharaoh. I think this is a very, this is a brilliant move by Pharaoh. Let's continue. He enslaves the Jewish people. The Jews are continuing to be fruitful. Now, by the way, all the, I'm going to go back to these verses to reflect again, but I want to get the first flavor, the first taste of these very serious versions. Now, in English I say it's, he speaks to the Hebrew midwives, but how do you understand? Are these, he, are these midwives Hebrew? It's ambiguous, but this I, I like to read it. How do you read it? When it says the Hebrew midwives, so who are these? The mid who are the midwives? Are they Egyptian? What? It could be. Now I think this is how this is how I propose. I think this is it's um it's closer to the text. Now try to follow my Hebrew. They are not meyaldot shehem ivriot. They are not Hebrew midwives, but they give birth to the Hebrew. That's right. So these are Egyptian women. That's important. These are Egyptian women. Here, I think Pharaoh's solution for the Jewish problem is what? 
kill the boys, and by killing the boys, what do you do eventually within two generations? They won't have any more. So the, 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 they'll have to intermarry with Egyptians, and then the Jewish nation evaporated. This is his proposal for This is the first time in history we find the sick idea of genocide, of destroying a nation. This is the first time this idea is ever written. And what is the technique of genocide that Pharaoh is proposing? Who is he using? Who is supposed to execute the Jewish people? The midwives. Meaning, those who are supposed to deliver life, this is the irony of Pharaoh, those who are supposed to deliver life, they're the ones who are supposed to present death. They're supposed to, and what is the technique, obviously? No, it actually doesn't say what, later on they'll say what the technique is. But they're saying, okay, now you have to kill every Jewish boy. And by doing that, you are exterminating? Is that a word? You're exterminating the Jewish people. Well, ultimately, in the end, actually what I want to establish here is exactly answer your exact question. I want to ask, what are the moves? How, what takes him towards genocide? How does he take an entire people to an ability to destroy another people. And we'll go back to verse 10, okay? What did the Egyptian midwives, what did they do? They refused the order, the commandment of the, of the dictator of Pharaoh. Now this is very interesting. The reason, according to the Bible, for Jewish existence today was because of civil refusal of Egyptian midwives. This is very interesting. They, for some reason, were not swept away by Egyptian propaganda. They actually, actually, their conscience was still alive. There is a midrash, maybe you're acquainted with, because of righteous women, we were saved from Egypt. I think the best way to see it is because of righteous Egyptian women, we were redeemed from Egypt. Verse, verse 19, What is their excuse? What does chayot mean? They are filled with life. They are, we didn't have, <laughs> we don't have enough time to reach them. They already give birth. We, we can't, we have, they're uncontrollable. You can't kill such a vital nation. They are filled with life. The last verse. Of chapter 1. Now Paro changes his technique. He is not commanding now the midwives to destroy the Jewish people. Now he's expanding the commandment. Who's he commanding now? Wow, the English translation, I think, is this. 
It's not there. So I can tell you whatever I want. Okay. So he's saying is, Pharaoh was commanding the entire nation, his entire nation. Every first, every, every child that's born, you need to throw them into the Nile. Now, uh, I think I'll, I'll take my translation. <laughs> now, now, when he is telling his entire nation, what is he doing? He's moving from trying to command, to get the midwives to kill the Jews. Now he wants the entire nation to be involved in the project of genocide. The entire Egyptian nation is now commanded. If you're an Egyptian and you see a little Jewish boy, you are commanded to throw him into the Nile. Now this is where, where the aggressive, the aggressor becomes, becomes a truth. The aggression becomes total. You want to exterminate an entire nation and you're using an entire nation to execute it. Now here's my question. How do you get an entire nation to throw an entire nation into the Nile? To drown the Jewish people. How do you do that? How do you get the entire Egyptian nation to do it? Now this, I want to go back to, foot, to, go back to the very effective Egyptian propaganda. How do they do it? But before we, but before we do that, I'd like, to, I'd like to capture the second irony here. How, how, are you, how is he planning to, what is the vehicle that he's using in order to exterminate the Jewish people? The Nile. Again, what is the Nile? The Nile, the source of life. Again, he is, is using, is, is using, is channeling the source of life in order to deliver death. By the way, the, the irony continues in the biblical story. In the end of the day, how will the Egyptian army, how will the, in the end, Moses, destroy the Egyptian army? Again, we will, they want to drown us. Well, in the end, we're back. In the end, the Egyptian army drowns in the water. What is Pharaoh's, what is Pharaoh's technique? His technique is if he would take a good look, if we go back to, to verse 10. What is, how does he, how does he gather the collective, the hearts and minds of the collective, and, try, and channels them violently against the Jews? Most propaganda is the following propaganda. First thing he does, and this is, I think, What's truly brilliant about Pharaoh's propaganda, and we will find this propaganda any time in history that, will be, that we will find xenophobia, the hatred of minorities, of foreigners. It will always be different versions of the same type of propaganda. It's the following idea. As human beings, we have a hard time hating and being aggressive towards weak people. We see someone weak, so all it does is create you have sympathy for the weak. Yav rachamim for someone that's weak. Psychologically, emotionally speaking, it's almost impossible to hate someone that's weak. I remember when I was in the um, when I was in the army, we San Francisco. So, so we were in. When I was in the army, I remember there was, do you remember in the, when there was the, the bombings in 96? 
So that one of the one of the bombings, we were, we went into an, an Arab village and we had to um, arrest people that are somehow involved in terrorist acts. Like you can imagine how soldiers feel the same day that a bus exploded. Actually, it was right next to a bus station that day. We went into an Arab village and we captured some very very serious and dangerous mivukashim, people that are wanted by the Israeli intelligence, and we were very eager and very. And I remember there was this guy, I don't know, he was wanted for some serious crimes. And we enter his house in the middle of the night, we take him out, and he was like, like um, fighting us. And we had to be aggressive in order to, to capture him. But there was a moment that once he was tied, and suddenly this terrorist, he's tied, and we close his, um, we close his, eye, his eyes with, um, with, a, with a blindfolder. Suddenly... Suddenly, he trips and he falls, and he suddenly, this terrorist that before, we were very aggressive, and there was a lot of en bad energy there, suddenly, he's a nebech. Suddenly, you know, he's helpless, you help him in so he won't bump his head in the jeep, and suddenly, he's just a small, he's a child, completely dependent on you. And I realized, it was amazing, how all our emotions suddenly changed. Suddenly, we were, you know, what? Now... Now this terrorist that that in our suddenly the, the minute he was he moved from being powerful to powerless I know this is fine boggling <laughs> emotionally speaking it's almost impossible and I want to tell you that I was I was very young that night and I couldn't believe that this person that I felt I'm supposed to really hate he was like this and we were giving him he was it was just there's something about being powerless that once you're exposed to it. It's almost impossible not to be have rachamim. This is his propaganda. So these people are much more powerful than you think. They're growing. They probably have some ties to our enemies. They're definitely questioning their loyalty. One day, they will be a fifth column. They will join her. And and in other words, what kind of image is he creating for the Jews, Pharaoh? He is creating an image that these are actually very powerful people. And creating the contrast between their real power and the image of their power, their real power, their powerless, their foreigners, their minorities. But in the image of power, they're powerful. They're more powerful. So there's two strategic equations here. There's the real strategic equations where the Egyptians are powerful and they're powerless. And then there's what propaganda creates where the Egyptians feel like they're the victims of their victims. And you create an image of power. Now this is, what, this is classic xenophobia. Xenophobic uh, propaganda. To, it's blacks are also victims to this xenophobic xenophobic. Propaganda is always the same. It's trying to create an image of power and giving it to the powerless. And then, suddenly our emotions can be, our, the emotions of hate can be released because fear, fear does trigger hate. Once I see the power, and so we create, but in Jews throughout history, we're always the victims of this type of propaganda. Now by reversing, by creating an image of power and offering it to the powerless and convincing people that they only seem to be a foreign, haunted, persecuted 
powerless minority, but they actually are. If you add their power to the power of our enemy, they are their majority and we are the minority. They are powerful, we are their victims. You create the paradox where you are the imaginary victim of your real victim. That equation is what enables xenophobia to be so powerful throughout history. And this is the first time we see this very sophisticated type of propaganda. So you ask, how can you, how can you recruit an entire nation to exterminate another nation? Well, you use very sophisticated propaganda. But the second thing you use is you dehumanize that nation by enslaving them, by turning them from subjects to objects, by robbing their will from them. It's very easy to exterminate someone once you stop, once you see him as a slave, once you, stop, you see him as an object, once you rob them from his humanity. So I think there's two very powerful movements that Farah does here. One, he sees them, he, one, he, he creates an image that they are powerful, and two, he dehumanizes this, powerful, this power by enslaving them. So paradoxically, he tries to, by exposing how weak they are, by enslaving them, actually, no, they're submitted, they're absolutely submitted to your power and authority, that doesn't crack the myth that they are powerful, what it cracks is a sense that they are human. And this is, and he moves from propaganda to enslavement to genocide. There was only one thing that didn't work. The midwives didn't buy into the propaganda. You know the, in Yad Vashem, when we walk into Yad Vashem, there's a famous uh, sculpture for um, the righteous Olam. Righteous Gentiles, and you know there is that really amazing uh, sculpture where you have the um, the righteous Gentiles, and you see their faces, and behind them you see the Nazi soldiers, but they are they have no faces; they're only helmets. I think it's a very powerful thing. I think it's trying to say that the Nazi soldiers don't, didn't have any faces because they were just they just channeled the will of the theater. They had no personality. They, they their conscience wasn't involved. And Chasideu Mota Olam, they actually asked, they didn't, their soul didn't channel someone else's will. They didn't, they don't obey orders. They actually discovered that they themselves had will. It's very interesting that Meyaldote Vriot have names here. They're recognized. Shifra Vepu'ah. They have faces, they're not helmets. They have names. They have their own will. And they're not swept away, which means also, which means, which is, is a great testimony for humanity. But also when there's very intensive propaganda, using very, very, very sophisticated techniques, there's some people that, that, can, that, that, that can still hold on to their conscience, to their own will, and not let the collective will be injected into them. And it's because of these type of people, because of these righteous people that you redeemed from Egypt. The chapter continues, I want to make a long story short. What is the reaction of the Jews to the propaganda that led to genocide? What are the reactions of the Jews? Well, you would say the national reaction is, well, if from now on, every, every child that's born is, being, is supposed to be drowned in the Nile, I would say the classic reaction would be, let's not have any more babies. Why would I be bringing children to this kind of a world? Well, that's not the Jewish reaction. Chapter 2, 
verse 1, וילך איש מבית לוי, ויקח את בת לוי, ותער האישה ותל את בן. How do the Jews react to genocide? From now on, every child that's born is thrown to the Nile. What do the Jews do? Let's have a baby. Right? I think the Midrash picked up that this was, that it was a challenge. This was a serious challenge. It didn't come easy to continue making babies. And the Midrash is trying to give that impulse of voice, which is important. By the way, does anyone have here deja vu? Chapter 1 in Genesis. By the way, who is the only one that God didn't say kitov on? Man. And now it's... No, the entire creation is tov me'od. Every creation is tov. And man, nothing. Nothing. And then suddenly this pasuk comes around, Vatere Otokitov, now Miss Midrash. <laughs> Here it's fulfilled, and Chazal say, Where is man's kitov? Well, when Moshe appears, then finally, okay, maybe it does work out. Vatere Otokitovu, Vatitspineu Shloshaya Rahim, Veloyachla Odatspino, Vatikahlo Tevat Gome, Vatachmera, Bechimar, Vibizafit, Vatasimbat Yelet, Vatasimbat. But they build the small Moses ark and they throw him into the Nile. I have a very simple question, but it's not always noticed. Why are they throwing him into the Nile? Why are they throwing him into the Nile? I mean, what are his chances to survive? What are his chances? Why are they hiding him in the Nile? Out of all places, the Nile? Will Egyptians go publicly swimming? Why in the Nile? Can't they, don't they have a better hiding place? I think they are commanded to throw the babies to the Nile and what Moses' parents are doing is exactly fulfilling the commandment. They're throwing their baby into the Nile. They're fulfilling Pharaoh's commandment, but they're doing it like Jewish lawyers do it. We threw him in the Nile. It didn't say anything about not, not putting him inside an ark. They didn't say. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you think about the Nile is where we execute all the all the Jewish babies. So they're saying, you know what? Let's we have to throw him in the Nile because he was born and he's a boy. But you know what? Maybe a miracle. Maybe something will happen. They put him in the ark. But how does when the daughter of Pharaoh goes swimming and she sees the baby and she says, Mialdea Ivrim? She knows he's a Hebrew. How does she know? Because what other babies are swimming in the Nile? <laughs> <laughs> it's like people say, oh, there is a drift. Oh, this is the Nile. You have Jewish. I mean, it's. <laughs> you know, the, this. And, yeah, it's a source of life. So, they, so they're actually fulfilling Pharaoh's commandment. The Jews were fulfilling the commandment of genocide. They were cheating a little bit, but they were. But, they, but this is what they were following the word. And you know what? What are the chances that he would have been saved? As far as they were concerned, he's gone. She's hoping maybe something will come out. By the way, I also sense here something ritualistic because we know that the Nile is a god. Actually, what Pharaoh is offering is not only genocide, it's literally Holocaust. You know what Holocaust is? Literally. It's a sacrifice. 
he is offering Israel to his God, to the Nile. Korban Ola. He's offering Israel to the Nile. The Holocaust is, is, a, is a sacrifice, which is a terrible, I think it's a terrible, we, we don't use, it's a terrible word to, to describe what happened in Europe, but that's what, that's what we use. Okay. I'd like now, after saying all this, just to continue just to think about the story a little bit more. And then, what's our time? What's, our, what's the situation? Now, now, now it's 10-ish? Okay, so I'd like to do now, I'd like to stop here and try to locate this story inside a more larger narrative in the Bible and connect this to the way I see what's the challenge of sovereignty in, in, of, of Israel today. This is a very powerful memory. And, and as you said, it's, it's a narrative constructed to say something. If we think about what are the Denying that the minority is a minority, denying that the minority is weak, seeing the minority as a complete other, that was the Egyptian act. Now, for over 36 commandments in the Torah, by the way, repeated more than any other commandments, we will be commanded to have respect for the foreigner. Why? Because we were foreigners in Egypt. In other words, trying to say, we are engaging our memory of being foreigners in Egypt in order to make sure that we will never, never be like Egyptians. Now it says, When you see a foreigner in your country, you should not deceive him. You should not take advantage of his weakness. You should turn that memory into ethical sensitivity. But Rashi understood something in human psychology. Rashi says in that verse, where you'll have a foreigner in your country, you shall not deceive him. He says, That thing that happened to you, says Rashi, you shouldn't, you shouldn't inject that on anyone else. Rashi understood that terrible traumatic memories might not turn us into, into might not transform us into sensitive people. And actually might have the opposite impact. We have a painful memory actually might turn you into someone that wants to that wants to give back. The world should pay for what I went through. Our traumatic memories can turn us into either into very sensitive people, but at the same time, those same memories can turn us into very not sensitive, into abusive people. We all know that that child that were abused many times turn into parents that abuse. A nation that was abused, says Rashi, might, when it becomes powerful, turn into a nation that abuses. That memory can turn us into a very ethical people, but at the same time, to an abusive people. Therefore, we are not founded and created and constructed by our memories. One of the greatest challenges of Jews is how do we how do we leverage those memories? How do we channel that power to turn us into more sensitive and not abusive? And this is in many ways what I think the Bible is about. The Bible is about tapping into that memory, but using it into, into transforming our collective personality to a more sensitive personality. So our, our 
challenge would be not to imitate our abusers, the Egyptians, but how not to become Egyptians. That is a tremendous challenge. And I think... Now here I'd like to... To see, since the Bible invests so much in tapping into that memory, I think it's fair to say that Exodus is the most important historic event in the Bible. The Bible uses much of its own capital in order to inject this story of Exodus that we read at the beginning, but we all know the rest, in the center of our collective memory. Tzitzit, the clothes that, 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 that Jews wear, what, what do you have them for? To remind you of Egypt. The mezuzah, what do you, what do you look, when you see a mezuzah at the door, what are you supposed to remember? The fact that you were in Egypt. Shabbat, Chagim, it's all about injecting that one biblical event in the heart of our memory. Now here's a question I'd like to ask. The purpose of the memory of Egypt was to make sure that we will not be Egyptians. That we will, that we will deal correctly with the challenge of power. That we will be in a, what the Zionists call the Chevrat Mufet, an exemplary society, or the prophets called, or, or what Moses called, a, a society that's Mamlechet Kohanim, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, the Goy Kadosh. How is it played out throughout the Bible? How was this idea? The biblical story begins in Exodus, in Yitziat Yitzayim, and then there's a continued narrative from Exodus to Leviticus to Bamidbar. How do you say numbers? Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay, I just, want, I, just want to know, I just want to learn English. Yeah, yeah. And we move from Egypt, we enter Israel, we have a period of judges, a period of kings, and then by the end of Kings 2, chapter 54, the story ends. It ends in exile. But where are we exiled to in Kings 2, chapter 50, uh, 24? Where are we exiled to? We're exiled in a long process, to Babylon, but that is not the end of the story. This is very interesting. The continuous biblical narrative doesn't end in Babylon. Maybe historically it does, but from a... but from a... from a from literature point of view, that's not where it ends. They say there's still people living in Israel, living in Jerusalem, living in Judah, trying to say that the biblical dream of leaving Egypt and creating a society that is the opposite of Egypt, that dream could still fulfill itself. And they have a king. Their local king is called Gdaliah ben Achikam. But then this guy called Ishmael ben Netanyah wakes up one morning, finds some partners, walks up to Gdaliah ben Achikam, the local governor, and assassinates him. And the entire Jewish people in Israel, as a result of the assassination of their governor, of Gdaliah ben Achikam. You're acquainted with the story of the assassination of Gdaliah? So this is very important. This is, this is, uh, it's usually missed. This is how the Bible ends. Now in a book, I think, you know, I'm writing a book now. I'm investing time now only now in two questions. I have one more day to give it in. How do I open? How do I end? How do you open creates the first impression. How do you end? That creates... How you'll remember the entire fakak, the, the, the whole book. How does the story end? The assassinate Daliyah ben Achikam, and then the entire people, what do they do? They're terrified that the Babylonians that were affiliated with Daliyah will come back and, and hit them again. So what do they do? This is what it says. They pack their bags, and they go back to Egypt. That's how the Bible ends. 
The Bible is a story that begins in Yitziat Yitzchak and leaves Egypt, and it ends when we are back in Egypt. Meaning that this, this narrative is a structure of a failure. The Bible is a great indictment of the Jewish people. We failed, like Americans say, we're back in the Bible. It ends when we're back in square one. We're back when we started. Nothing really happened. We never left Egypt. Historically, is it true? I don't know. But this is a message that the Bible is trying to radiate, that this was a story of the failure of the Jewish people. Like David Hartman said once, if he wouldn't have known that the Bible was written by Jews, he would have definitely would have said that the Bible is written by anti-Semites. Now, this is a great criticism of the Jewish people, by the way. Why did we find ourselves in Egypt in the first place, according to Genesis? There was famine. That, that's the economic reason. What is the ethical reason we found ourselves in Egypt in the first place? Because of the way the brothers treated. They thought that Joseph didn't, he was overprivileged. That he didn't deserve what he deserved. And then they, you know, so there was a whole process. They threw him, they, they sold him. If, and then the entire family, as a result of baseless hate, as a result of they took care of Joseph, they found themselves in Egypt. Now, according to Kings 2, chapter 24, the assassination of Daliyah ben Achikam, why did we find ourselves in Egypt in the second time? Because of the same reason. Because Ishmael ben Netanyah didn't think that Gedaliah ben Achikam deserved to be the king. He thought he deserved to be, the, to be the king. Again, because of baseless hate. Again, because brothers couldn't get along with brothers. It seems like this is a terrible story. Because not only is it a story of a failure, they were back in Egypt. It's a story of a repeated failure. We're back in Egypt for the same reasons. Because we don't get along. Because of, by the it's almost like the Bible is trying to say, is that when the Jews are lose their sovereignty. It's not because of our foreign relations. It's always because of relations, relationship inside. Now the Bible, it seems like the Bible is a story of the failure of the Jewish people. Now here's something I want to ask about Zionism. Ben Gurion, in a very famous article, said, Hatsiyonud shiva elatanach. Zionism is the return to the Bible. We are going back to the Bible. We will speak the language of the Bible, Hebrew. We will live in the land of the Bible, in Israel, and we will be sovereign like we were sovereign in the Bible. It's an attempt, this is how Ben Gurion says it, the Zionism is an attempt to skip 1,000, skip 2,000 years, 1,900 years, and, and to go back like to the same page where the Bible, where the Bible ends. Now, the whole roman the being of Zionism was also a romantic movement. We're going back to the Bible. But here's, the, here's my problem with that reading of Zionism. If Zionism is the return to the Bible, I don't think the Bible wants us to return to the Bible. The Bible is the story of a people that failed to create a mamlechet kohanim goy kadosh. To create a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It was a story of our failure. The Bible is, doesn't command us to return to the Bible. On the contrary, the Bible wants us to escape the biblical pathology, to overcome the problems of the Bible. Maybe Zionism 
is not about returning to the Bible. Mid Zionism is about overcoming the Bible or over succeeding where the biblical state failed. It says in the, the closest thing that we have to a constitution in Israel is Megillata Atzmaut. That's the independence declaration of our country. And it says there, the following, there's a following very interesting one. It says there, Medinat Israel, the state of Israel, Tehem Mushtata. Mushtata is a word that we'll never use today in Hebrew. Tehem Mushtata, but will be founded. Al Yesodot HaTzedek HaChirut VeHashalom on the foundations of justice, liberty, and peace. In light of the vision of the prophets of Israel. The state of Israel will be founded on the values of the prophets of Israel. We will fulfill the values of the prophets of Israel. Now here's my question. The prophets of Israel spoke about values of justice, of peace, of liberty. And they said a state needs to live those values. But what state did not live the values of the prophets of the Bible. The state that did not live and fulfill the values of the prophets of the Bible was the state of the Bible. Therefore, if, if Zionism is about creating a Jewish state that actually will live in light of the values of the prophets, we will be the first Jewish state that ever did that. Zionism is not an attempt to return to the Bible. Zionism is the Bible's second chance. Now, what is the second chance? And what this is something that I think you came here this summer to reflect on. What is a second chance that Israel, Israel is the Bible's second chance? That Israel is an attempt to succeed where the Bible failed. Israel is a success. Maybe this time we won't find ourselves, metaphorically speaking, or not metaphorically speaking, back in Egypt. But I think but I want to offer a rereading of Zionism. Zionism, I think, is not a good reading of the Bible. Usually the way... Now, why does Zionism read the Bible this way? Because usually that's how collective memory is constructed. Collective memory is always constructed the following way. That the founding moments are great moments. That the founding fathers are always giants. That's how Zionism tells its own story. That people from the Aliyah, Niyah, that came here, the pioneers, they are giants. No one tells us that 90% of them surrendered, gave up, and went back to Europe. No one tells us that a large percentage of them committed suicide. No one tells them, because the myth is that the founding generation are giants, just like in the founding story of America, the Puritans coming off the Mayflower were these, they were greater than life people. In every nation, the founding generation are always giants, because that's where you remember the founding moments. But what kind of a historical awareness does that kind of thinking create? When the founding moments are great moments and the founding fathers are giants, who, what are we always? And the best we can do is to imitate them. The best we can do is to relive the past. When the Bible tells us that our founding moments were small moments, were moments of failure and of sin, and the, the Jewish, the people of the Bible actually failed, it turns our face... And this is probably, Mircea Eliade says, the great anthropologist, this is the only story that does that. 
but it creates an opposite historical awareness. We're not with facing the past, we're facing the future. We're not trying to reconstruct what happens, we're trying to create something that never happened. That, I think, is the special historic awareness that the Bible creates. That, I think, what Zionism could be about. Suddenly, we have a minority with no rights, we're powerful, and now, the biblical challenge that was never alive is now alive. I would say this is the irony. I, I, I want to offer a definition of ethics or of morality. Um, if, if me and Ken find ourselves in a deserted island, and let's say I realize that Ken is a karate master, okay? Which he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know I'm not. It will be fair to say that the reason I'm not stealing Ken's wallet was because I'm so ethical, I have values. <laughs> Why am I not stealing Ken's wallet? Well, maybe it's not because, maybe it's because he's a karate master. Meaning, many times when we don't use our power, many times the limitations, what creates the limitations for our power is the limitations of our power. What is morality? Is creating artificial limitations of, for our power. Like, what if I was a karate master? And what if he had a very, very, he had a lot in his wallet? And he's not the karate master. Now, what stops me now from stealing his wallet? Well, now it's not the limitations of my power. Now it's artificial limitations of my power. Now it's my values. Therefore, you could only practice ethics when you're powerful. You can only realize that you are moral when you're powerful. This is why, because you could only be ethical when you have the opportunity to be unethical. You can only be sensitive if you have the opportunity to become abusive. That's why 1967 presents a great challenge for Zionism and for the Bible. Finally, we realize that we're powerful. Finally, we realize that we can, in six days, we can defeat the entire Arab world. Suddenly, Jews realize that they have power, and from this moment, the Bible is alive. I would say the occupation does not mean that we abuse the Bible. I say that because we have the possibility to abuse the Bible, we also have the possibility to fulfill the biblical prophetic vision. And this is something I must say, that life throughout the diaspora did not give us the opportunity when you're powerless, so you're not faced with the challenges of power. You're not stealing the wallet because you're not the karate master. But ever since, actually, 1947, well, we are sharpening our swords and we are increasing our power and by doing that we are giving a second chance to the biblical challenge to prove that maybe we could be have the power of the Egyptians but the sensitivity that the Egyptians didn't have so this is I think these are if we try to think what are the opportunities that Zionism presents well I think this is how it looks like I think that the Paulinian the, the, the Christian reading of the Bible is a very good reading of the Bible the Bible speaks about the failure of the Jewish people, and what's the natural conclusion of the Bible? Saying that maybe God is God gave up on the Jewish people. That's a very good reading of the Bible. Where the Talmud come and say, Well, maybe maybe if we failed once and we failed twice and we failed three times, maybe we could still pull it off again. It's not giving up. And I think that's what I think Zionism is a great answer. It's trying to say, you know what? The fact that we failed many times before doesn't mean that we're going to fail again. And this is something that I learned. I'll just conclude with this because I want to go into Chavuta a little bit. But I learned from my daughters. My daughters, it took them a long time to learn how to walk. 
It took him a long time. And I have one daughter, Avital and Shiri, and Avital just got up and started walking. She fell sometimes and she started walking. Shiri took her a long time to learn how to walk. And I was, I realized that the reason why she doesn't, she's afraid of falling. And since she was afraid of falling, she didn't dare to, to try to walk. And I don't know why she was afraid of falling. I don't know why. I don't think I ever told her you shouldn't ever fall, which was a Catholic thing. If you fail, that means that you, you're doomed to fall. But my wife told me something very interesting, that the minute she was willing to fall, that's the minute she started to walk. The minute she was willing to fall, that's when she started walking. And I realized, I think she fell maybe a thousand times before she started walking. Now can you imagine that she would have, she would have been Catholic about it, meaning, or being rational about it, meaning, okay, you try, you fall once, you try, you fall again, then you come to the natural conclusion that this doesn't work, you know, let's, you know, <laughs> this doesn't work. But I'm glad that she didn't come to that conclusion. I think grown-ups usually do. <laughs> you know, you try, you fall once, you fall again, okay, you get it. You don't, I think, and I think what's amazing about babies is that they don't let their failures determine who they are. And I think the Bible, the Zionism is trying to say that let's not let the biblical failure determine who we are. The fact that we failed once in Genesis, twice in Kings, well, it's, you know, doesn't seem... It, Let's try it again. And this is, and you know what? And maybe, and this is something that I think our friends around the world have no respect for ability to fall. Our friends around the world, if we screw up once or twice, okay, Israel's not worth anything anymore. Let's go up. That's that girl in, in Baltimore. Why don't you just cancel it? She saw us, you know, not working, not working. Let's just cancel it. And it's, well, this is, Zionism is a tremendous challenge. Offering the Jews so much power. And trying to see, can we, can we overcome the biblical pathology? Can we have, make it this time work? So I think you're 100% right. The Christian reading is, well, if the Bible fell, that means we're doomed to fall. Let's, so let's try something else. And I think the, Zion, the Zionist reading is trying to say, well, we failed once, we failed twice. We'll probably fail more, many more times. But as a people, we will learn to walk again, eventually. If, if we were discussing now classical Israeli advocacy, I would say I think that Israel is actually doing a very good job dealing with its power, reflecting on its power. Myself, I'm invited constantly to the army, to high-ranked officers, to discuss these issues. And I don't know if many armies do this, but, I, but, but what I want to speak now is not how to justify Israel. What I want to think is, what is the, chat, what is the opportunity? Why? I think the fact that we're so powerful is exciting. The fact that we fall sometimes is exciting. The fact that we screw up sometimes makes this, this is what happens when you have power. I think this is part of the reason why we have power, maybe to prove that it's possible to become, well, power corrupts and maybe we can, over, and maybe, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And still, you know, I, there's a point I, I want to make for one. You know what? I don't, want to, I don't want to lose control. What's our situation, time-wise? Quarter of time. Yes, but there's an amazing text I want to study. I came here to study a different. There's an amazing text I want to study. So I have an idea. I want to study now another text, and then we'll open up to all the questions in the world. Is that okay? Sababa. Sababa in Hebrew means grandfather's coming.
<laughs> yeah. No. Sababa means. Sababa means not chill, you know. Sababa. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's not working. Sababa. Yeah, the seder is very is very correct. Yes, Sababa is more. Okay. No, but it's good. It's an easy, you're right. It's with a good connotation. It's very slang, but it's um, but this word managed to Israelis going to hang on to this word for a long time. I think it's almost going to become part of official Hebrew. Sababa. So, I'd like now to offer you a reading. Of Isaiah 19. Yeah. Now we have till we have till 11, right? And now we have 40. So we have 45 more minutes. So let's read this together. Um, will you feel completely deceived if you don't do chavuta? No. 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 You won't feel like you're completely deceived. Then. Okay. Sababa. <laughs> That's right, yeah, there was, we went through a lot of chavuta. That's right. Okay, so how are your chavuta sessions? Were they successful? Did yes, you enjoy them? Yes. Great, great. Yofi. So, I'd like to now, after, after trying to expose a narrative that's so exodus-centered, I'd like to think all over again about what is the narrative of Exodus, and if I'm missing something, just tell me. I want to say it out loud. Exodus begins in Genesis when brothers hate brothers. As a result, they go down, down to Egypt. One day, a dictator emerges in Egypt. As a result, they're enslaved. They lose their liberty. One day, they start praying to God. Oh, by the way, in a very powerful word in Hebrew that describes... It describes how they were enslaved and their, their, their rights were robbed by the Egyptian dictator was Lachatz. Lachatz, I think, a contemporary Hebrew doesn't carry. Lachatz means crush. They've been crushed by the Egyptians. They pray to God. And what does God do? He hears, and how does He redeem them? He redeems them when He appears to Moses. And he sends Moses. He redeems them through a redeemer. Now, there's something that always troubled me reading the narrative of Exodus. Okay, uh, do you agree with all those motives? Mm-hmm. dictator, lachatz, pray to God, and sends him a redeemer, right? You, you agree with all these motives. There's something that always troubled me. There's a, there's a second narrative in Exodus, and that is... Uh, uh, a certain phrase repeated about seven times in different ways and versions, then the end of Exodus, and the end of Yetziat Mitzayim, not only did Israel be redeemed, something will happen to Egypt themselves. It says, V'yadu Mitzrayim ki Yashem. And as you know, Egypt was a culture that that's admired itself. They thought Pharaoh wasn't only a king, but was a god that admired their own power. In order for Egypt to know God, they have to somehow release themselves from themselves. 
from admiring, from self-admiration. And it says like seven times, but here's my problem. I realized that it never happened. That, that Egypt never knew God by the end of the process. That never happened. Now, I always found that kind of troubling. Now, this biblical promise, it's like in Exodus, there's a political redemption for Israel, but a spiritual redemption for Egypt, and that part never fulfilled itself. Now, with all that in mind, I'd like to read what I find an amazing chapter I discovered just two years ago. Oh, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I have only one problem. That it never says that Egypt recognized that. It just never says it. Okay? Sure. I never thought of that. Actually, Rabbi Nachman has a reading. It's very interesting. Okay, so I want to read, offer a careful reading of Isaiah 19, and I think Isaiah 19 is a great midrash of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Masa Mitzrayim. Now, okay, now I read this as a midrash of Exodus, but the way Isaiah presents it is as a vision of an e the future Egypt. What will happen one day to Egypt? This is Isaiah 19. Okay, you have the text? How is God, what's God's vehicle? He's riding on a cloud. He goes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt shall be moved, and the heart of Egypt shall melt within it. Talking about God appearing in Egypt, and there's like a collective panic attack when God enters Egypt. But I think that's just a, um, this is the Koteret, this is how he sees the entire chapter. Sikhsakhti creates, what's a Sikhsukh? That's right, there's going to be a war between Egyptians against, there'll be a civil war in Egypt. Brothers are going to hate brothers. Step one in the future of Egypt is that Egyptians will start hating themselves and fighting themselves. They're very pagan and they believe in magic and when things go wrong so they go to the irrational and they go into all the mystics and the magicians. Verse 4 A dictator will emerge in Egypt. After there will be brothers hating brothers, a dictator will emerge and he will enslave them. He will be their master. They will be his slaves, his servants, his slaves. Now you have the entire Egyptian nation enslaved to a dictator. 
ונשתו מים מהים ונהר יחירה ויבש והזניחו נהרות ועלו וחרבו יור. Now there's something that describes here terrible catastrophes happening located in the Nile. It's very repetitive, so I want to, I want to jump to... Let's go back to, to 16. Describes here a catastrophe that happened in the Nile. Bayomahu. Okay, this is a... <laughs> There's a powerful and problematic metaphor here. Can you imagine? What a terrible situation they'll be in. They'll be just like... I don't want to say anything. This is all recorded. I'm, I'm limited here. The meta, he's using a very powerful metaphor. What are the Egyptians like? A battered woman. When Tnufat, I think Tnufat Yad Adonai Tzvot is... God is sitting there and having... Yeah. Oh, I'm censoring myself. God, Tnufat Yad Adonai Tzvot is when God is going to hit them and how they react. That body language of being an abused woman... That's the metaphor that the Prophet uses to describe, to describe Egypt in those days. Now, there is a spiritual process that the Egyptians are going to be going through. They'll be speaking Sfaknan, which I think they mean is Hebrew. Adapting the, the Jewish culture. So they're going through adopting rituals, worshipping not their gods, but the God of Israel. Now listen to verse 20. The Egyptians will scream to God. Mipnei, unbelievable. Mipnei, lochatzim. And how does God react to the Egyptians praying to Him to redeem them from their lochatzim, the people addicted to crushing them? How does God react? Vayishlach lahem, sorry, Moshia. Do you realize what's happening here? They have brothers hating brothers, a dictator emerges, he does lachats on them, they pray to God, he sends them a Moshe, sorry, a Moshia that redeems them. What is this story? This is a story repeating Yetziat Mitzrayim, but here is the scoop. Who will go through this process of Yetziat Mitzrayim? Mitzrayim! This is an attempt of saying that Mitzrayim are doomed to go through Yetziat Mitzrayim. And what does this mean? That our story, they're going to be really the our story. The Egyptians are going to go through Yetziat Mitzrayim. Let's continue. Now, verse 21. This is the verse I was waiting for for many years. 
the biblical promise that as a result of Exodus, the Egyptians will know God, will then happen when we went through Yitzhak Mitzrayim. When will it happen? When Egypt will go through Yitzhak Mitzrayim. When they will experience being powerless, being persecuted. Only then. See, this is interesting. We thought that when the Egyptians will be exposed to the Ten Commandments, to the not Ten Makot, plagues. plagues. What is God, how is God trying to educate them that they're not gods, that they're not divine, but He is? He's exposing them to His power. That doesn't work. When will it work? When He exposes them to the limitations of their power. That's when it works. Not when they see how powerful God is, but when they see how it feels to be powerless, when they are powerless. That's when it works. That's the national therapy that God offers to Egypt. When they, it's, the, Isaiah is imagining here a future, a very daring moment that Mitzrayim will go through Yitzhiat Mitzrayim. Now, we're talking about the kingdom of Israel, Egypt, and, and Ashur uniting what Shimon Peres called once a new Middle East, <laughs> a new Middle East, now I hope you're holding on tight, because it is, I think, I find an amazing pasuk. God says, blessed, him, blessed be Egypt, my people. Can you imagine? In Isaiah's vision, God says, Baruch Ami Mitzrayim. The Egyptians are the bad guys of the Bible. They are the genocidal, they are our worst enemy in the Bible. And how does it, what does Isaiah say? In the end, God will say, Baruch Ami Mitzrayim. Maasei Adai Ashur. Nachalati Yisrael. Baruch Ami Mitzrayim. You know the song, Ami Mitzrayim, Chai? Uh, yeah, I don't, that doesn't really exist. <laughs> Thinking, I, yeah, yeah. when you think about the way Isaiah tries to imagine us thinking of the Egyptians as God's chosen people, just like we are. Now, I think something just happens here. Something radical just happens here in this chapter. Isaiah actually saying, the minute you can imagine Egypt living your history, when someone robs you from your unique story, and you share your story with someone else, it also robs you from the sense that you are unique. And this is a thought I'd like to reflect on. What is, the, what is Isaiah trying to say here? A great, great book was written about the impact of Exodus on history by, by Michael Walter. It's called Exodus and Revolution. A great, great book. And he shows how throughout history, nations were inspired by the biblical story of Exodus. They were so inspired that they saw themselves as people that are reliving Exodus. When the Puritans got on the, on, the, on the Mayflower, crossed the Atlantic Sea, and found themselves in America, in their own story, they were Israelites crossing, not the Atlantic Sea, but the Red Sea. And the Egyptian king was obviously, who was he? 
Who was he in their minds? Pharaoh. He was Pharaoh. And when they built Harvard and Yale, so learning Hebrew was mandatory. Because they experienced themselves as the new Israelites, and obviously all New England is Salem and Canaan and Bethlehem, and there's three cities called Hebron, and their eyes, oh, they were 13 colonies, right? What does 13 stand for? The Israel 12 tribes and the tribe of Levi. There's 13 tribes actually in the Bible, because we never count one of them. So they, in their mind, they're reliving Exodus. Michael Walter says, writes this great book saying that almost every nation fighting for liberty and justice see themselves as reliving Exodus. Now this is interesting. These, all these nations throughout history do not interpret Exodus. They don't offer interesting analysis to Exodus. They see themselves as re-experiencing Exodus. Well, Aristotle wrote once that the function of art, art is... What is art about? Why do you go to movies? Imitates life. Art imitates life. That's why we like to go to movies or to plays. Because we like to see an imitation of our life. There's something therapeutic, says Aristotle, about you identify with the hero. It imitates your life, but it's still not your life. You can be excited about it without having too much anxiety. That's what art's about. In Aristotle's time, they used us to go to play once every few months. Today we open TV. Some people, according to research, four to six hours a day. Some people eight hours a day. Can you imagine people watching TV eight hours a day? They are experiencing the imitation of life more than they're experiencing the real thing. As a result, research was done, and a, a great Israeli uh, wrote about this, Gadi Taub, that you hear people today saying in certain situations of life, they say, well, that's, that's just like in the movies. Like when there's a comic situation, you can hear people constantly saying, wow, that's just like in Seinfeld. And I remember the first time I was going down an Arab village and in the middle of the night with my guns, I felt like I was, I was like in Rambo or something. You know? And we have this experience of being like in the movies. It's very interesting if Aristotle said that, you, that art used to imitate life, it seems like today life imitates art. We're imitating the imitation. Now, there, now, now, if we, but I want to offer a larger picture. I think the first time we see where this really happens, before the mass production of TV, the story of Exodus. The Puritans are reliving the story. Now, people will ask, and nations throughout history try to relive, they see themselves as the heroes of the story. They're not readers of the story, they are the story. By the way, isn't that what we're commanded in Reda Sedel? We're not commanded to read the story, we're commanded to be the story, to become the story. Well, it seems like that ancient commandment is relived by nations throughout history, especially in modern times. That's a great point made by Michael Walter. I want to think about this. Many times students ask me, did this really happen? Is this a real story? Was there once a people in Egypt and they left Egypt? Is this a real story? Meaning, is this a story that reflects history? Ever since Michael Walter's book, I have an answer. I don't know if this story reflects history, but I do know that history reflects a story. Maybe this is a true story not because it reflects history, but because it creates history. Not because it's a perfect imitation of what happened, but because everything that happens is an imitation of this story. But that's a very interesting phenomenon. 
And it creates tremendous irony. Because when we read Exodus, we realize that Exodus is about creating a unique story for the Jewish people. What is Pesach about? Passover. About God passing over us and killing them and choosing us. It's about creating, it's about election. It's about choosing us over them. It's about saying that we're different than anyone else. That's what the story is about. But what happened with the story is the following paradox. The story that was supposed to make us unique. It's a story that we shared with the rest of the world. The story that, that statement is that we were chosen among the Gentiles. We are different than the Gentiles. That story, in the end, throughout history, we shared with the Gentiles. We shared it with them. We're not chosen from the as opposed to them, we're chosen just like them. And if you'll ask me, who is the first person to think of the idea that our story could be shared with history, with mankind, can inspire them to relive our story, the first person to think about this in a very radical way was Isaiah. And he thinks about it in a radical way. He says, let's share this story not only with our friendly nations, we can dare to share our story and offer it as inspiration to our enemies, to the Egyptians. That is a bold moment in the Bible, Isaiah 19, which leads to a bold statement like, Baruch Ami Mitzayim. I think this is, I think Isaiah 19, I think Isaiah 19 hit something very serious. That our story, that we experience as a unique story, will become, will transform itself from a particular story to a universal story that nations throughout history will relive this story and Isaiah says it, and Isaiah way before Michael Walter, way before any nation ever adopted this story, he said, well, even the Egyptians can experience this therapeutic moment of moving from being powerless to powerful, of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of the, of the battle for liberty. Since, I think, the idea of, of election and chosenness is embarrassing for Jews. And today you see throughout campuses in America, Jews so embarrassed of the notion of chosenness and being unique and being elected that we went the other way around and we say, no, there's nothing special about us. We're just like anyone else. Shlomo Kalibach once put it very nicely that when you go to a college campus, there's a great line of Shlomo Kalibach, and you meet a student that says he's a Buddhist, you know he's a Buddhist. And when you meet a student that says he's a Protestant, you know he's a Protestant. And when you meet a student that says he's a Catholic, you know he's a Catholic. But when you meet a student that says, I'm just a person, then you know he's a Jew. He knows he's a Jew. I'm just a person. Now, I think what Isaiah is trying to say here, that in order to, now this is the point I tried to, I'm trying to make, that in order to connect yourself to the universal, in order to offer my gift to mankind, to overcome my ethnic boundaries, to offer my gift to mankind, I think what Isaiah is saying, we don't have to over, overcome our own unique stories. What we can actually do is we can offer the world our unique stories. And what he's actually saying is that we don't have to, in, in, uh, in, in Hebrew there's a great metaphor, you shall, you, you, you shell from yourself, you, take, you strip yourself from everything that makes you unique in order to come in contact, to feel, to experience the fact that I'm just a person. I'm a human being. I'm a part of mankind. I'm a universalist. 
What Isaiah is saying is that we can, we can come to the day where we could see Egypt as God's chosen people just like us, but that's not if we strip ourselves from a unique story, but, if, but only if we actually live a unique story. The way to come in contact with humanity, with the universal, is not overcoming my, my ethnical boundaries, but actually not overcoming being a, Jew, being a good Jew, but being the best Jew that I can be. My story is not a story that I'm, that I'm, I'm not, we, just, we shouldn't be greedy at our story. We have a unique story, but our unique gifts, as long as we experience them powerfully, we are willing to share them. And this is what history taught us that happened with the story of Exodus, where our unique story that we thought that only we own, only we can have, suddenly history took that story and people see themselves as the heroes of that story. Now some people would say that this Isaiah 19 is a universalist, he's not loyal. He's a universalist, he's not a patriot, he's not loyal to our own narrative. But maybe we could say that he's offering us a different form of patriotism. A patriotism that's not founded on saying that we have something that no one has, but a patriotism that's saying that what we have, anyone can have. A, a patriotism that, that's not founded on being better than, but a patriotism that's founded on being, of being generous and seeing yourself as a source of inspiration for the others. Well, I think any, any nation experiences exodus in its own particular way. The French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, Amer or, or different revolutions around Europe, and obviously the American Revolution, they experience themselves as, as, the, as the Jews leaving Egypt. They experience themselves as not readers of the story, but as the story itself. But they do it in their own way, in their own particular way. And, and one form of patriotism would say, well, no one can take that story, it's only about us. And another form of patriotism, the Isaiah patriotism, would be, well, what makes me unique is the fact that everyone is trying to is the fact that we're sharing our story with everyone else. Well, first of all, I accept everything you say. And still, humanity did learn how to fly in the end. And the reason I learned why, because the White Brothers, they built the first airplane and it crashed, and they built the second one and it failed, and they were willing to fail and fail again. And it's only because they were willing to fail that we all can fly. I have a good friend that works in Google. And he tells me that what makes Google amazing is that all their, their managers tell them, you should all, you're allowed to make mistakes. You should make mistakes. And it creates a very daring society, a society that enables them to take, to take risks, and that's that what makes Google, Google. I want to tell you as an experience as an Israeli, it seems like we're not allowed to make any mistakes. Okay, we get off the wrong rope on the wrong boat, and the next day we are, you know, we're, we're, we're Nazis. We're not allowed to make any mistakes. And in a world where you're not making any mistakes, it's very hard to grow and be creative and overcome yourselves. That's very, and that's why, that's why I think what I would like, what I would like Israel advocacy to look like, would be less trying to say, is listen, we never make any mistakes, but on the contrary, something very exciting is happening in Israel. There's a lot of potential happening in Israel. The only way for that potential to fulfill itself is if we'll enable these Israelis 
to make mistakes. Let's give them some space to grow. It's not easy after 1,200 years to come back to an ancient language, an ancient country, and having that ancient power and, trying, and not having the opportunity to learn through trial and error and to make your own mistakes. This is, I think, a very, a very serious challenge that we have. And, and having to explain ourselves all the time that we didn't make any mistakes instead of saying, you know, yeah, yeah we're going to have to find out what happened with the Fertilla. Mm -hmm. uh, well, first of all, well, to, to, to Israel's uh, defense, I'll say something, I'll, I'll say even more than that. The chant, it's very not probable that Israel would be a democracy. Because war, it, during times of war, countries have a tendency to become less democratic. And I want to say that that includes the United States of America in World War II, locking Japanese. It's, it's, when you're in time of war, when, you're, when your life is threatened, you have a tendency to be not less democratic. The fact that Israel was born into a war and for 62 years been fighting a war and still we managed to maintain a vital democracy, that is an incredible testimony for the, for the power not only of Israel and of Jews, but as a testimony for the power of democracy. This is, I think, a story we could, we could share with the West. That democracy does work, that it couldn't fulfill even under, even under attack, even with those guns, guns aiming at you. I think we should be not apologizing for the kind of democracy we are, but we could be, I think we could see ourselves as proof that democracy can work in impossible conditions. By the way, all the people that founded this country come from undemocratic traditions. And the combination for people who are coming from undemocratic traditions in a situation of war makes the, the fact that there is a possi the possibility of democracy here, this is, is, is by itself unbelievable. I'll tell you, when we, here's a question. What is the real strategic equation and what is the imaginary strategic equation? Is the real strategic equation that it's us versus the Palestinians? They're powerless and we're powerful. That's one reading. A second reading is that it's Another Muslim meaning would be, it's not just you versus the Palestinians. It's the entire West, back, backed by American guns, versus the Palestinians. It's the ultimate powerful empire versus these little kids throwing rocks. That's also another way to read it. We can also flip it. Trying to say, it's not us versus Palestinians, it's us versus the entire Muslim world. From Pakistan to Iran, all the way to us. And maybe a better way to read it is that Israel today is isolated in the Western world and threatened by the Muslim world. Maybe so. There's different ways to read what is the real strategic equation and what is the imaginary strategic equation. And this is, I think, up for debate. And I think a good reading, reading would be that today Israel is isolated in the West and threatened by the East. And is that an imaginary reading? Is that a paranoia? Or is that the real strategic equation? And the imaginary one is the Palestinians weak, we're strong. I think we're competing here on what is the real strategic equation. And the truth is that we don't know. Isn't it both? It's probably both. It's probably both. But the truth is that there's certain moments in history when in that moment you realize what is the real equation and what is the imaginary equation. And usually those moments are wars. During the war, we'll know if the West will back us or turn its back to us. If the Muslim world will join, if Iran and Pakistan will join. So we'll all, now we're in the guessing game of who is the powerful and who is the powerless. And I believe that when we see ourselves isolated in the West and threatened by the entire East, 
I don't think that is only paranoia, propaganda. I think there's a lot to say for that narrative. But you're absolutely right. Um, the tendency to demonize the weak by imagining it as strong is a tendency that the Bible sees it as the Pharaoh tendency. And if we, that we want to be people that leave Egypt and not Egypt. You have been listening to Dr. Micha Goodman, a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. You can hear more from Micha and other Institute scholars by subscribing to this podcast. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.